0: Well, what an incredible delight to be here this morning and to see this wonderful congregation. I have a deep love for your pastor, and I am so grateful to him for inviting me to come today. And you did a great day's work when you called him to be your pastor. I also have a great love for Jonathan Jordan and for his family, and we have prayed for them uh, during the Time uh, His daughter was going through a difficult uh, experience in her life. I've known B.J. for a long time, so I feel like I'm at home this morning. And uh, I, I brought some books to make available to you uh, during uh, this day. One of them is called Blessings and Balderdash. It's a collection of editorials that I wrote as editor of the Christian Index. It covers everything from Mother Teresa to Britney Spears, And uh, it's not for everybody. If you are a right-wing, conservative, fundamental, politically incorrect person, you probably will enjoy it. If you're not, please don't buy it. But uh, they're available out in the common area, the atrium, I don't know what you call it out there. And there's also a book on sermons that I've preached on the Holy Spirit, so... uh, I want you to turn to John chapter 11 this morning as we think about the raising of Lazarus from the dead. I'm going to call you to commitment today, and uh, I think that's an important thing for a preacher to do. I heard about this young journalist who had graduated from college in the field of journalism and got a job in a, a small town but all he was writing was the obituary columns and the social news. He was not very fulfilled doing that. He was hoping that he could write a story that would be picked up by the Associated Press, but he would just get nowhere. But one day, the dam above the town burst and flooded the town with water, and he thought this just might be his opportunity to write a story that would be picked up by the uh, Associated Press or some syndicated columnists. And So he got in a boat, he began to maneuver around town to see if there was a story that he could find. I mean, the water was up to the awnings of the houses and he happened to be uh, moving that uh, boat along the way and he saw this woman seated on her roof next to the chimney and he maneuvered his boat up to the house, climbed up on top of the roof, sat down beside the woman and told him what he was looking for. A big story. It was not long after that until the headboard of a bed floated by, and she said, now there's your story right there. He looked at it and shook his head and said, no, 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 that's not what I'm looking for. Not long after that, a piece of pulpit furniture from the local Baptist church floated by, and she said, now there's your story, sure enough. He looked at it for a few moments, and he shook his head, and he said, but that's not what I'm looking for either. Not long after that, a hat floated by. The hat made a 180 degree turn, floated upstream, made another 180 degree turn, floated downstream, made another 180 degree turn, floated upstream again. He said, now that is a story. She said, no, that's not a story. That's my husband, Hayford. He said he was going to cut the grass today come hell or high water. (laughs) I'd say that Hayford was committed, wouldn't you? So I want to call you to a commitment today. We're going to uh, look at the raising of Lazarus from the dead and I want you to have uh, one finger here on John chapter 11 and I want you to also find a passage in Second Corinthians chapter 2 and we're going to read two different passages of scripture and try to harmonize these two selections from God's word. Now you know the story of Lazarus. He was a friend of uh, Uh, Jesus, in fact, his sisters, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, often hosted Jesus in their home. And Jesus one day received word while he was at a distant city that Lazarus was sick. The Bible says he remained several days in the same town before he began to make his way toward Bethany. And by the time he got to Bethany, Lazarus had died. And so we're going to pick up on this narrative with Jesus standing in front of the tomb of Lazarus. And uh, look at verse uh, 38, if you will. That's where we're going to start. Then Jesus again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, By this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound, hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Now, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I want to begin reading in verse 14, and there are three words or three phrases I want you to remember particularly. If you have a pen or a pencil or magic marker, whatever, mascara, you can underline these words. But the natural man, there's the first word, natural, the natural man, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual, there's the second word, the word spiritual. But he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Continue in chapter three. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal. Now, there's the third word, natural, spiritual, and carnal. As to babes in Christ, I have fed you with milk and not with solid food. For until now, you were not able to receive it. And even now, you're you're still not able, for you are still carnal. So remember these in this order, the natural man, the the, uh, carnal man, and the spiritual man. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray this morning that you would do anything in us that you need to do, that you might be able to do everything through us that you want to do. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So far as we know, there were three people that Jesus raised from the dead. First of all, there was the daughter of Jairus. Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue, and his little girl got very sick. And he went to Jesus and asked Jesus to come to his home to heal his daughter of her illness. Now, we know that Jesus didn't get there in a hurry because there was a press of people around him And we know that this was the time when the woman who had the issue of blood stretched out her hand, touched the hem of Jesus' garment. They had a conversation. Jesus healed the woman in a miraculous way. We don't know how many other interruptions he had on the way to the home of Jairus. But the truth is, by the time he got there, the little girl had died. I don't think she could have been dead very long. In fact, I kind of picture her with the blush of life still on her cheeks, but the Bible specifies clearly that she was dead. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus suffered no man to enter the house except for Peter, James, and John, and the father and the mother of the maiden. So they were the ones who saw Jesus raise this little girl from the dead, who probably had been dead maybe for an hour, maybe less, but she was dead. On another occasion, Jesus and his disciples were going into the village of Nain, and it so happened that the only son of a certain widow in this town had died, presumably during the night or early that morning. You see, in Israel, they tried to bury people. As quickly as possible because they didn't have sophisticated means of embalming, for example, as did the people in Egypt. So we can assume that maybe he'd been dead for the better part of a day. But they conducted his funeral and they had the procession going from the synagogue to the cemetery when the procession of death was interrupted by the procession of deity. And you know that deity and death cannot occupy the same space. And so when Jesus encountered this procession of death, he touched the casket, spoke to the young man. He sat up in his casket to the absolute astonishment of everybody in the funeral procession. But now, when it comes to Lazarus, it's not a matter of someone who's been dead for an hour or so, nor someone who's been dead for the better part of a day. Lazarus has been dead four days. There is a stench coming from the sepulcher. The demons of decay had been doing their work. Decomposition had set in. There's no question about it. Lazarus' body was putrefying. And so Herbert Lockyer, one of the Bible commentators, says that this is undoubtedly the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performed. Now, I want us to look at Lazarus in three parts. First of all, let us consider dead Lazarus. Now, what are the characteristics of someone who's dead? Number one, a dead person has no appetite. When Lazarus was alive, I think we can believe that he had a hearty appetite. But once he died, no appetite whatsoever. You see, he had two sisters. And when he visited their home, Mary would come and sit at the feet of Jesus. She was enthralled by everything that Jesus had to say. She would drink in every word that Jesus spoke. Now, Martha, on the other hand, she was a worker. She's in the kitchen rattling pots and pans and preparing the meal for that night. In fact, on one occasion, She went to where Mary was talking to Jesus and said, Jesus, would you please ask Mary to help me? I have a lot of responsibility in the kitchen. And Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you're troubled about many things. Can't you see that Mary has chosen the better part? And obviously there's not anything better than sitting at the feet of Jesus. But I got to tell you, I like Martha. My wife's name is Martha. I like it when she's in the kitchen stirring up something for dinner. And I believe that Lazarus enjoyed putting his feet under her table. He was interested in the menu for the dinner that night. He enjoyed smelling the aroma that came from her kitchen. He had a hearty appetite. But once he died, no appetite whatsoever. And you know people who are lost and without Christ do not have an appetite for the things of God. In fact, if you study the Bible carefully, you'll discover that a person who is dead spiritually is the person who is lost, the person who is without Christ. In fact, when Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she lives. When he wrote the church at Ephesus, he says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Jesus said on one occasion, Verily, verily I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on me hath everlasting life, and has passed from death unto life. When the father welcomed the prodigal son back from the far country, he reintroduced him to the neighbors and said, This is my son who was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and he's found. So dead Lazarus represents the natural man and the natural man has no appetite for the things of God. The natural man does not read his Bible with a great deal of enthusiasm. Someone said, these hath God married and no man shall part dust on the Bible and death in the heart. A lost man doesn't have a appetite for the Bible. He doesn't have an appetite for worship. I mean, you don't see lost people beating down the doors of any church anywhere to hear the gospel. They're not that interested. That's why we've been told to go out into the highways and hedges and compel them, beg them to come so that they can hear the word of God. Lost people don't have an appetite for prayer. They don't have an appetite for spiritual things. And so if you're here this morning and you really don't have much of an appetite for what's taking place here, that may be a sign that you're dead or lost or without Christ. So one of the characteristics of a dead person is no appetite. Here's another characteristic of a dead person, no activity. Here is Lazarus lying in this tomb and he's not moving a muscle. I mean, rigor mortis has set in. He is as dead as a government job at four o'clock. He is D-E-A-D dead. And there's no activity in that sepulcher where he's lying on that marble slab. And the truth is that lost people are not willing to invest any of their time or talent or energy in spiritual things. In fact, sometimes those who come to church aren't really interested in doing anything other than being a spectator or auditing the class. They're not really involved. We're told that about 25% of the people in the average Baptist church do about 90% of the work. Well, that means that 75% are only doing 10% of the work. And so if you're not actively engaged in some kind of ministry, then it may be a sign of death on your part. For example, over in Athens in the fall of the year when they have a big football game at Sanford Stadium, they have 94,000 people who are in need of exercise watching 22 people who are in need of rest. That may be an example of what's happening in the average church today. If God's people are really saved and are wanting to invest their lives in something eternal, they will get busy for Jesus Christ. And if you're not busy for Christ, it means that you have no appetite for the sort of activity that is spiritual, and that may be a sign of death. Here's another characteristic of death. Not only no appetite, no activity, but no awareness. When Lazarus was alive, I'm sure that he was aware of what was going on around him. I mean, he was uh, aware of funerals, and he was aware of weddings, and he was aware of social functions, and he was aware of current events. But once he died, he was not aware of anything whatsoever. I mean, the brain waves were not working for him. The truth of the matter is that uh, people who are lost have no awareness of spiritual realities. In fact, the text that I wrote from 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 2 says, The natural man understandeth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. I mean, you try to witness to someone who is lost and explain something about the Bible to them and they may not get it. And they're telling you the truth because they don't understand the spirit of God is not in them to teach them and instruct them the things that they need to know about eternal matters. And maybe you're here this morning and all this is kind of going over your head like water on a duck's back. That could be a sign that you are spiritually dead. In Matthew 4, 13, the Bible says that Jesus leaving Nazareth came and dwelt in Capernaum. It was in Capernaum that Jesus did many of his mighty works. It was there that he healed Peter's mother-in-law and the nobleman's son and the centurion's servant and the paralytic. And it was there that he gave his great discourse on the bread of life. It was there that he called several of his disciples. It was there that he gave, uh, that he he fed the 5,000. But you know what? they didn't kick him out of the city like they did in Nazareth. They didn't crucify him like they did in Jerusalem. They just gave him the cold shoulder. They didn't understand who he was. They didn't know that he was the Messiah, the anointed one. They did not know that he was the son of God. They just simply were not aware. It may be that you're not aware of what's taking place here. And if you don't rejoice when someone gets saved, if you don't rejoice when we sing these great hymns and Worship songs of the faith. If you don't get excited when we have Christian fellowship that is like to that in heaven, then it may be that you're really not saved to start with because one of the signs of death is no awareness of spiritual realities. So here's Lazarus laid out in the tomb, no activity, no appetite, no awareness for this dead man. So what does he need? Well, he needs life. But let me tell you, first of all, what he does not need. A dead man does not need an education. If you educate someone who is lost, all you make out of him is a clever devil. I mean, let's say you get a physician to go in there and talk to Lazarus about the functions of the human body. And he talks about the function of the endocrine system and the digestive system and the uh, circulatory system and the cardiovascular system and, the, um, and, and all of the lungs and the, and the liver and the kidneys and the heart. And you explain all about physio- physiology and anatomy to him. Is that going to cause someone who is dead to live? No, he doesn't need an education. Somebody says, well, what he needs is a different environment. Get him out of the cemetery. Get him to a place where there's life and noise and activity. So we get him out of the cemetery and we take him to a sports bar where there are all these television screens with football games and video games to play and food and drink and crisp conversation and loud music. Is that going to help someone who's dead? No. Issue is not an education and issue is not environment. Somebody says, well, then the issue is example. What he needs is a good example of life. So we take uh, someone in there who is a bodybuilder, like The Rock, who's in the movies, former wrestler, maybe still wrestles, I don't know. But he goes in there and he does some uh, push-ups and he he uses his barbells to do some curls and he does some deep knee bends and he does all these calisthenics and he says, now this is what... Life is all about Lazarus. Is that going to help Lazarus? No, he doesn't need an example. Somebody said, Well, what's he, what he needs is encouragement. So we get the cheerleaders from Bethany High School with their short skirts and their pom poms, and they go in there and they say, All right, Lazarus, two bits, four bits, six bits, a dollar. Come on, Lazarus, stand up and holler. Is that going to help him? No. If someone is dead, he doesn't need an education, he doesn't need a different environment. He doesn't need an example, and he doesn't need encouragement. What he needs is life, and life is in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. In 1 John chapter 5 it says and this is the record that God has given unto us eternal life and this life is in the son and whosoever has the son has life whosoever has not the son has not life. So here's life embodied by Jesus Christ and there's death embodied by Lazarus. And so Jesus Christ speaks and says Lazarus come forth. And all of a sudden, the eyes of all the people that are in that cemetery are transfixed on the open entrance of the tomb. And all of a sudden, they see this white form emerge like this. Now, he can't walk because he's bound up in long strands of linen cloth. His arms are bound to his side. His legs are bound together. Or maybe his arms are over his chest like this. He has a napkin over his face and it's wrapped up so he can't walk. He's, he looks more like an animated mummy than a human being, but he's not dead any longer. And while dead Lazarus represents the natural man or the lost man or the unsaved man, defeated Lazarus, bound up like he is, represents the carnal man. You say, well, preacher, what's the carnal man? What's a carnal person? It's somebody who is a Christian, but who has fallen Or slipped up in some way. I've got two definitions for it. Number one, a carnal Christian is someone who is a Christian, but he has not grown or she has not grown in her faith. Now, if you've been a Christian for five years or 10 years or 25 years or 50 years... There should be incremental growth in your Christian experience so that you're becoming a mature Christian who understands the Word of God, who has a consistent prayer life, who's sharing his or her faith on a regular basis, and you're faithful to Christ and His church. You know, if a woman were to have a baby here in Douglas, and that baby weighed one uh, seven pounds and one ounce at birth, and six months later, the baby still weighed seven pounds and one ounce, and Two years later, the baby still weighed seven pounds and one ounce. We would say that's terrible. It's not supposed to be that way. And you're right, it's not. And if you're a Christian, you do not need to continue for a long time to walk about in the swaddling clothes of an infantile faith. You're to grow in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, you're to develop spiritual muscles. You're to learn how to put on the whole armor of God so that you may stand in this evil day. You must learn how to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God rather than trust in the flesh so that you can operate in the power of the Spirit. And so I would ask you personally today, if you're a Christian, are you growing as a Christian? Are you truly a disciple of Jesus Christ? The word disciple comes from the Greek word methetes, which means someone who is actually following in the steps of Christ on a consistent basis. So, are you a carnal Christian? Are you growing? Or has your growth been stunted by an unwillingness to feed yourself on the word of God and grow in his grace? Here's another definition of a carnal Christian. It's someone who has... Lapsed into a brief momentary season of sin. Now, notice that I said lapsed. I believe that a lost man will leap into sin and love it. A lost man will lapse into a season of sin and loathe it, hate it. And it's possible for all of us to lapse into a momentary season of sin. But I'm going to tell you something if you're a Christian, and you lapse into a season of sin, you're not going to like it at all. You're going to be absolutely miserable. A Christian cannot be happy having one foot in the church and one foot in the world. Christians are not made to be compromisers. They're made to be conquerors. And we need to understand that. But as I uh, told the earlier congregation, all of us slip into moments of sin when we do things that we should not do. And I gave an example of an experience that I had when I was pastor of a church in Jackson, Mississippi. We have three children. Our three children were teenagers during part of the time that I was pastor of that church. Our boys were playing basketball for their high school team. And we were coming down to the end of the season. If we won this particular game, we were going to get to play for the state championship. And it was between two schools in Jackson. Our our sons are twins, they are identical twins. Somebody said, they look so much apart, you could hardly tell them alike. And I guess that's true. But John was number 34, Jerry was number 35. And in this hotly contested game, we were coming down near the end of the game, John, number 34, had four fouls on him. Jerry, number 35, only had two fouls on him. And the opposing player from the other team, stole a ball from one of our players, was going down the court for a layup. John caught up with him and jumped to block the shot but hit the player's hands. And the referee turned to the scores table and says, that is a foul on number. And John and Jerry had swapped places and Jerry had his hand up. <laughs> Jerry with two fouls on him. John over in the corner with four fouls on him looked like he was nowhere near the play. And the referee said, that's a foul on number 35. I thought it was the most clever move I'd ever seen in all my life, and I said, yes. (laughs) My wife nudged me and said, you hypocrite. (laughs) How can you possibly endorse that kind of deception? And the Holy Spirit used her to make me feel about that high. And I began to sheepishly look around to see if anybody could have seen me and everybody was staring at me. Including the chairman of my deacons who had a son who played on the other team. The only saving grace to that situation was that our team lost. But after it was over with, I went up to the chairman of my deacons and I said, I guess you saw what I did. He didn't say anything, he just nodded. And I said, I'm so sorry. I was just caught up in the moment, but I'm sorry. And that Sunday, that was on Friday night, the next Sunday morning, I apologized to our whole church and told them what I had done. And it sounded like a frivolous, funny, comical sort of thing. But is it possible that somebody could have seen me that Friday night and said, if that's what Colonial Heights Baptist Church is all about, I don't need it. Or more so, they could have said, if that's what Jesus Christ is all about, I don't need him either. Has there been a time when someone may have looked at you and concluded, if that's what Christianity is all about, I don't need it? Rick Warren said, there are two reasons why lost people do not come to faith in Christ. Number one, they've never met a Christian. Reason number two, they have met a Christian. Is it possible that someone saw you in a carnal moment of your life and they were turned off Christ? Jesus said on one occasion, he said, whosoever is, uh, is not for me is against me. And whosoever gathers not scatters abroad. We're either gathering people to Christ by the way we live or we're scattering. We're, we're repelling them from Christ by the way we live. A lot of us are kind of like mermaids. You know, a mermaid is too much fish to hug and too much woman to eat. You can't have it both ways. We need to be sold out to Jesus Christ. We need to be thoroughly committed to him. Heard about this little boy who had a a mutt that he wanted to enter in the county dog show. I mean, it was a Heinz 57 variety dog. It was a curbstone setter. And he managed to get the dog entered into the dog show. And the dog show was on a Saturday morning in the city park. And there were judges in this reviewing stand. And these people who had their dogs were bringing their dogs before the viewing stand. And some of these dogs were registered with a, American Kennel Association and they were beautiful dogs. There was an Irish setter that was just absolutely immaculately groomed. There was this cute little French poodle that was manicured to the tee. There was this stately Boston Terrier that came by and the judges were ooing and eyeing and praising these owners for their dogs. And then this little guy came along with his mutt. And one of the judges said, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, what kind of a dog is that? The little boy said, that is a German police dog. The judge said, well, it doesn't look like a German police dog to us. The little boy said, that's because he's in the secret service. (laughs) So if you think you can get by with being in the secret service, you are misled. We're to live in such a way that everybody knows that we are a child of God. We're to live in such a way that people look at us and they're drawn to Christ. By our demeanor, by our conversation, by our personality, by our loving spirit. So carnality is not good. And all of us have probably delved into carnality at some point in life for a period of time. Or we've had something that happened that was an indication that we were not filled with the spirit and there was some carnality about us. So Jesus saw the problem and he said, loose him and let him go. So they began to unwind those long strands of linen cloth. Pretty soon he could walk. The Bible says we've been raised up to walk in a newness of life. As his hands were freed, he could work his hands. Now the Bible says, we, uh, whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might. The napkin was taken off of his face and the long linen cloth was unwrapped from his face. and. He could speak, the Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Now he's witnessing and working and walking for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's not dead any longer. He's not defeated any longer. You know what he is now? He's dangerous. He's dangerous to the evil and the wrong and the system of Satan. I want you to look in John chapter 12 for just a moment. In John chapter 12... Beginning in verse 9, it says, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Lazarus is not dead, he is not defeated, he's dangerous, he is not a natural man, he's not a carnal man, he is a spiritual man. And people are coming from everywhere to see him because he is a trophy of God's grace and what has happened to him is a miracle. Look in the next verse. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus also to death. Now they're already plotting to kill Jesus, but now their plan is to kill Lazarus too. Why? Look at the next verse. Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Because of Lazarus, People were turning to faith in Christ, probably by the scores. Like I said, we're either gathering people to Christ or we're repelling them from Christ. Are you the spiritual person that God wants you to be? I'll tell this and we'll be done. In 1968, I went to my first Southern Baptist convention. It was in Houston, Texas. It was held in a huge arena called the Music Hall that would hold about 15,000 people. was my first convention. I was like a country boy come to town. And I found out while I was there that Billy Graham was going to be preaching on the last night. But unfortunately, I had made plans to leave on Thursday afternoon before Billy Graham was to preach that night. And as Thursday approached, I realized that I really wanted to stay there and hear Billy Graham. So on Thursday afternoon, I called my wife and I said, honey, if I can get a flight in the morning back to North Carolina, where I was a pastor, and if I can get another room in this hotel, would you mind if I stayed another night to hear Billy Graham? He's my hero. I grew up in Western North Carolina, not far from where he grew up. And I'd heard him on the hour of decision. I'd seen him on television, this great evangelist, but I'd never heard him in person. And my wife said, sure, you do that. So I went to the hotel desk. I'd already checked my bags with the bell captain. I said, can I get another room here for tonight? She said, I'll have to put you on a waiting list, but there's a possibility because you're number one on the waiting list. So I waited in the lobby of the hotel and late that afternoon, she motioned for me to come to the desk. She said, we have a room for you. I took my bags up to the new room that they gave me. I got on the phone, I called, I made flight arrangements for the next day to go back to North Carolina. And by the time I got down to the music hall, there were hundreds of people outside and I didn't know what that meant, but I soon found out they said that the place had already filled the capacity and the fire marshal said nobody else could go in. There was a thousand young people from the Houston area premiering a new musical called Good News, and they were about ready to start singing that musical. And so being the creative and ingenious person that I am, I decided to walk around that building. Surely there was a hole, a a window, a door, some way that I could get in. I walked around twice to no avail. I walked around the third time, and I was standing at the back of that building, and I was praying, Dear God, please let me get in here. I don't care if I have to stand up for the whole service. I don't care if I have to sit on the floor. Please make it possible. And I was standing beside two double doors that I had just tried to open, and they would not budge. And I stood there dejectedly when several cars pulled up at those doors, and in the passenger side of the front car was Billy Graham. Also in the cars was George Beverly Shea and Cliff Beres and Leighton Ford and Grady Wilson and T.W. Wilson, and Ted Houston. I mean, the whole Billy Graham team was there. And I just stood at that door thinking at least I'll get an up close and personal look at Billy Graham. And when he came by, I spoke to him and he spoke to me. And when he touched the doors, it was just like open sesame and they opened up for him. And we all walked in. I think maybe they thought I was with security. I think security thought, once we got in, that I was with Billy Graham. I walked down this long corridor, down another corridor, up some steps, through a curtain. Next thing I knew, I was on the platform of the Southern Baptist (laughs) Convention. Everybody else had a lanyard indicating that they were eligible and qualified to be on the platform. I didn't have any such lanyard. And so I sat down, the young people were finishing their concert. I assumed the posture of prayer thinking that if I was praying, no one would ask me to leave. So I just had my head bowed during the whole time that they were singing the last 15 minutes or so. And when they finished, Cliff Bearer stood up and said, we're just going to have a gospel service tonight. And he began to preside and he announced a song and we had these little convention song books And I turned to me, and the person next to me was George Beverly Shea, who sang with Billy Graham for 60 years. He died just a couple of years ago, I think at 103 years of age. He was a holy man of God. His life is sort of summed up in a song that he made popular, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. So we were singing out of this course book and I could just sense something about this man. There was an aura of godliness about him. The service continued and then finally before Dr. Graham preached, he said, the, the choir's going to sing and then America's beloved singers of gospel songs, George Beverly Shea is going to sing and then Dr. Graham will bring the message for the hour. The choir sang and then George Beverly Shea turned to me and said, brother, you pray for me while I sing. And I thought, me pray for him? And he went to the platform and he sang a very simple hymn. The words go like this. Earthly pleasures vainly call me. I would be like Jesus. Nothing worldly shall enthrall me. I would be like Jesus. Be like Jesus in the home. Be like Jesus in the throng. Be like Jesus all day long. I would be like Jesus. That's what he's saying. And I sat there thinking, God, help me to be like Jesus. Help me to be the spiritual person that you've called me to be. And I think everyone in this congregation this morning, you're either dead or defeated or dangerous. In the fourth quarter of my life, I want to be the devil's worst nightmare. I want to be dangerous to the enemy. And I want to exalt Jesus. And serve him with all that's within me. We're going to have an invitation just in a second. This invitation, if you're here and you've concluded that you're dead spiritually, Jesus Christ is the life. It's like he would be extending his arms to you this morning and asking you to come and partake of the life that he provides. It's a whole lot better to walk about full of life than like the walking dead. Come to Jesus. Trust him as your savior. Give your heart, soul, life, future to him. There are others of us here who perhaps are far more carnal than we'd like to be. My desire is to be a spiritual person. And I believe that many of you would have that same desire. So maybe if that's your desire, you'd just come and kneel around this altar and say, God, I want to be the spiritual person that you've called me to be. I want to be dangerous to the devil. And I want to bring glory to God. Father in heaven, I pray that in the invitation...